The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Those are verses 6 and 7 of Exodus 34, which are the verses under consideration this season of Advent 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. We are continuing our look at the divine attributes of mercy as expressed here in these two verses in the Exodus. And so we are, we are continuing that search today. We are looking at the, the attribute of um, steadfast love, abounding in steadfast love. Um, it, it's important that God abound in steadfast love. It's one of the principles of the universe. It's part of the reason that God created the universe, to be honest with you, because what, what it is, is is the idea of a loyal kind of steadfast love. And it requires an other for that to be expressed to. It, it, it's not a feeling. It's something that has to be given, and it requires action from the giver. And so this is one more thing, and maybe the chief characteristic of God, that we need to be able to give thanks for and to praise him for, to his steadfast love. And and it's expressed within the covenant, within the covenant that he makes with Israel, and then the, the, the steadfast love of God is available to us in his Son, Jesus Christ, who is before the throne, interceding on our behalf. And so that's how the steadfast love of Christ plays itself out in this moment in time. It's also the steadfast love of God in providing everything that we need for our existence, for giving us more than we deserve. Um, We don't deserve anything, but for the sake of his Son, then he gives us more and more and more because of his great love for his Son and his great love for those who are created in his image, particularly those who love his Son as well. So it's, it's an important concept. It, like I said, it's probably the, the single most important principle in creation, because otherwise the, the creation doesn't last. It, it doesn't get past the first sin unless God has hesed with his people and for his people. Even when they fail to keep the covenant, God continues with this steadfast, loyal, faithful kind of love. So it's got to do within a relationship. And so the part of the reason that God created humankind is, is that he has this need to express the love that he has. And so he created those who were created in his image so that he could lavish his love on them. And so that they could, there could be a covenantal relationship there. It's not an emotion. It's not a feeling. Nope. It involves action on behalf of someone who is in need. And we're going to see that played out in the life of Jesus, but we're also going to see it played out in a couple of the epistles where, that, um, where the concept is stressed by both James and John. Uh, not to say that Paul didn't, he certainly did, but it's a little clearer in, in those two um, epistles than, than it is in Paul's, because it's, it's very directly stated in those, is what I'm saying. So what we get then is this idea of this covenantal uh, love of God that he makes covenants with he, with people he knows are going to be unfaithful to that covenant. And in spite of that, he goes ahead and makes that covenant with them. 
And so he continues to be faithful. We count on his faithfulness. Sometimes we can count on it too much, to be honest with you. Sometimes that we can, we can expect God to be more forbearing than, than we should. It's important that we return that love for him. Um, and it's important that we understand the nature of our own existence and the nature of, of who we are and what we are. What is the chief end of man? It, well, it's to love God and to glorify him and worship him forever. That's what the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, and it's dead right. <laughs> That's exactly what the chief end of man is, to love God and to enjoy him or worship him forever. And so we, we need to, to constantly be aware of that, because that keeps us faithful to the covenant as well. There, it's interesting, in this one, what it, what the, uh, the way that it's expressed here in Exodus 34, it, it says that, that he abounds in steadfast love. And, and so there's a word there that precedes the word hesed, which is the steadfast love that we're speaking about. There's a word in front of that, and it's rav. It's just a three-letter word, and there's a couple of different ways to look at it. One of those, if we treat it as though it's a noun, then, then it can mean master. So he would be the master of kindness. It could also be handled as a verb, because it could be either one. And there it would be due in abundance. So that, that means that, that he does this more than the other attributes of mercy that are listed here in this passage, which is what uh, Nachmanides, uh, 8th century, no, 12th century, scholar would would say that that's exactly the way he sees it and then there's the third possibility and it's an interesting way of looking at it and it has to do with that he tilts the scales towards kindness in other words what what happens in that thought is not going to be applicable within christianity not in the same way that it is seen in judaism and understood in judaism what it essentially would be that that he puts his thumb on the scales so it's only applicable in that sense when you have a person whose whose merits exactly equal the other side of the the scale. So their merits aren't enough to get them into heaven because the other side, the evil that they did, is equal. And so God puts his thumb on the scale in order to make sure that they get in. But what he, what they say is, is that, well, that person's got to pass through Sheol in order to come to heaven ultimately that's not an issue in christianity because we don't need a thumb on the scales jesus is the thumb on the scales i'm not the decision about whether i married eternal life has nothing at all to do with my own merits it has to do with what do i make of jesus do i believe him to be the way the truth and the life that no man comes to the father but by him do i believe he is god's chosen messiah do i believe that he is the incarnate son of god do i believe that he took my sins on him willingly on that cross that he was resurrected from the dead three days later and now ascends to the right hand of the father where he takes the scroll that no one else in heaven even or on earth or under the earth was found worthy only he in all history and all of creation is worthy. Do you agree with that? If you agree with that, then the thumb is already on the scales because you aren't weighed, Jesus is, and he has already been found worthy, worthy of resurrection, worthy of ascension, worthy to receive the scrolls, worthy to receive glory and power and honor and blessing. And so that's the way it works for us. 
I'm very, very thankful for that. I'm thankful for God's hesed in the idea of this other way of the thumb on the scales thing, because that's how he does it for us. He doesn't weigh my merits. No, he weighs Jesus' merits. And we already know what his judgment on that is. And so since I already know what his judgment on Jesus is, and I know it from the resurrection, then I'd be a fool to want it some other way, if I could have it that way by faith. So so that's the Ramban is the one who, who speaks of it as is, is that that is the greatest of God's attributes. There's another man. His name was Maimonides. So the Ramban is Nachmanides. Maimonides was 100 years or so before Nachmanides. And Maimonides, who is called the Rambam, says that Hesed refers to two qualities, and that is we show kindness to those who have no claim whatever upon us, and second, we are kind to those to whom it's due in a greater measure than is due them. And so the way Maimonides looked at it, whenever we, he was told to love his fellow, to love his neighbor like himself, then, then he said, okay, I have the greatest duty to um, other Jews, other people in the covenant. And then I have a different level of responsibility to those other people. But I have a superabundant um, duty towards those who, who are in uh, covenant with me by being in covenant with God, with Yahweh. And so Jesus, when he tells the parable of the prodigal son, turns that idea on its head, redefines the word neighbor and means and, and changes it to mean anybody, anybody who needs help that you're able to provide. So I, I don't have two classes of people to whom two different kinds of duties are owed. No, I have one class of person, neighbor, which means anyone else created in the image of God, and I owe them whatever I'm able to give them in the same way that Jesus took pity on me and came into this world and and did for me what I could not do for myself. And he gave me eternal life. He gives me his spirit now. So I owe a duty of hesed to him, that loyal, loving love, uh, steadfast love, because of what he's done. But because of what he's done, I also then become his hands and his feet in the world today. So there's there's three different kind of, I mean, there, there's so many different words that are used to try and translate this concept, but but none of them by themselves are adequate to do it. So the, the one of the things that I looked at, which comes from Precept Austin, P-R-E-C-E-P-T, Austin, Texas. Um, if you're ever looking for good word studies, go to Precept Austin's website. Precept was a, uh, is a Bible study that's actually based out of Chattanooga, a woman named Kay Arthur, and so that it's called Precept Bible Study. And so Precept Austin has really good resources if you're ever looking for word study information in particular. And so they say that there, there are three basic meanings that all interact with one another, and that's strength, steadfastness, and love all together. And if you don't have all of those in the definition or understanding, then you're missing something, because it, then it becomes this sort of sentimentalized, sappy kind of love, um, and, and it's got to do with the covenant itself. So, but, but strength and steadfastness then sort of feel like a, a, a legal obligation. I'm bound to do this because we have an agreement whereby I said that I would do it, and yet it, there's more than that. 
it's it's this mutual and reciprocal rights and obligations between the parties of a relationship. But it's not just obligation, it's also generosity on God's part. It, it says he's going to go above and beyond the rule of law to show this kind of love to us. And it's expressed first, the first time you really see this directly stated by God is in, in the covenant itself, in the Ten Commandments. He said in, in Exodus 24, 20 verses 4 to 6, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or in earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And so the way they see that, when he says he shows steadfast love, shows hesed to thousands who love me and keep my commandments, he says, look, he says, if they're unfaithful, if they hate me, if they reject me, then, then I will reject them to the third and the fourth generation. However, those who love me and keep my commandments, I will show steadfast love to thousands, plural. And so what they say is God's hesed is 500 times because four generations on those who hate him, but thousands, and they read into that, of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So it's 500 times at least, because thousands is more than 1,000. So it's at least 500 times greater than the anger of God. So that's exactly the way they read that passage, but that's the first place God promises Hesed. He has shown Hesed to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, none of whom deserved what God did for them. They all sinned in the same way that we all sin. But, but he showed Hesed to them because he had made a promise and a covenant to Abraham. And he continued to keep that covenant no matter what they did or where they roamed. It, it's, it's primarily used of God, but there's a couple of places in the Old Testament where you see it otherwise. And, and one of those is the relationship between Jonathan and David. Jonathan, the son of Saul, the first king of Israel, and David, the second king of Israel. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul, and Jonathan took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. David wouldn't let David go back to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul, and Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. So, in other words, what's happened here is, is David has said, said, or Jonathan has said, I I consider our relationship to be higher than my relationship even to my father. I'm willing to lay down any right I have to kingship because of my relationship with you, David. And people, because of this, suggest things like they're homosexual. People don't understand friendship. They do not understand friendship who suggest such things, and they also have an agenda. <laughs> they want to say this is here, hiding in plain sight, always has been, and it's okay. It's not. That's not what it is at all. No, Jonathan sees something in David that, that says, I, I want to be in a covenant relationship with you. I trust you with everything. And, and so they were in that kind of relationship. Both of them were married. They had children and all this. David, ultimately, after Jonathan's death, looks around and says, is there anybody's left in Jonathan's household to whom I can show kindness. And they say, there's this one guy, he's this lame guy named Amphibosheth, who is Jonathan's son, and he was injured when he was small because his nurse dropped him. And so he says, all right, 
and he brings Mephibosheth into his household and, and treats him as though he were one of his own sons. So you see that relationship between human beings. And then the other place, the place where you see it more clearly than anything else, actually, is in the book of Ruth. So Ruth is a Moabite woman, and, and her mother-in-law's name is Naomi. So Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, have, have gone because there was a famine in the land. They left the land, which they shouldn't have done, and they go to the land of Moab, which is just like over there, right? I mean, it's very close. So they go and they take their two sons, Machlon and Kilion, and they go there and, and they establish themselves there in that community. That They didn't plan to go back. No, they established themselves and their children, Malan and Kilion, both marry Moabite women. Ultimately, she hears after, the, after her husband Elimelech and her sons Machlon and Kilion have died, Naomi hears that the famine's over in the land. She can go back to Bethlehem now. Bethlehem, remember, is the city of David. It's where Jesus was born. So she goes back, and her daughter-in-laws begin to follow her. She said, no, 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 don't do this. And so one of them, Orpah, goes back. But Ruth refuses. She says, don't urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more, if anything but death parts me from you. Till death do us part. Like, sounds like a marriage, right? I'm going to stay with you until death. Nothing is going to separate us. I will be loyal to you, and I will love you. Now, why she would have done that, I have absolutely no idea. Because it's not a good situation. Right. I mean, things went bad for them and, and things weren't good in the land of Israel, but they were fine in the land of Moab. So they came to the land of Moab and then the men died. So what did she see in Naomi? Because Naomi comes back and they say, oh, Naomi, which means pleasant. And she's no, 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 don't call me that anymore. God's dealt very difficultly with me. Call me bitter from now on. Call me Mara. So what she saw in Naomi or Naomi's God, I have no earthly idea, but she saw it. And so she went. And then the rest of the book of Ruth is the story of the redemption of Ruth by a man named Boaz, who is David's grandfather, and she's his grandmother. So <clears throat> that's, that the, the concept of Hesed in interpersonal relationships is more clearly seen in the book of Ruth than any other book in the entire Old Testament. It's more, most clearly seen in Jesus who does for us what we're unable to do for ourselves, and he keeps that loyal faithfulness. And, and this is the thing, that I grew up a Methodist, right? Well, here's what's wrong with Methodism. I can lose my salvation. Well, if I didn't achieve it, how in the world can I be expected to keep it? I, I'm unable to make it. I'm unable to be perfect. And because I'm not able to be perfect, then, then well, I have to rely on Jesus' perfection. I'm not perfect the next day either. Or the next, or the next, or the next, or the next, or the next. It's, it's never within my capability of maintaining my salvation. It's maintained by his perfection, beginning to end. So that is the true hesed. Even when I fail, even when I'm unfaithful to the covenant, Jesus says, I've still got it. I got him. If he confesses his sins, I got those sins. I'll take those. That's where it comes from. So in, the, in, in Matthew, Jesus lays out in Matthew 25, verses 31 to 40, and I'm not going to read the whole thing. He, he lays out hesed in our interpersonal relationships as a basis for us getting into the kingdom. Well, wait a minute. I thought it was faith alone. It is. 
but faith has to play itself out, as James said. Faith implies now we're walking in a different way, and so we're walking in the way of Hesed. And so Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and the angels with him, they'll sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. He'll separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goat. Sheep on the right, goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on the right, come on, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I was hungry, you gave me food. Thirsty, you gave me drink. Stranger, you welcomed me. Naked, you clothed me. Sick, and you visited me. And in prison, you came to me. And the righteous are going to look and go, when did we do any of that? He said, whenever you saw anybody in those situations and you extended hesed to them and then he looks at the others and he says you're not coming in because you didn't do any of those things and so the way that we're intended to see other people is the way christ sees us with great compassion and great love i remember malcolm muggeridge a great um journalist in in britain in the 20th century he, an atheist though but he, he went to do a, a book on, on Mother Teresa, and, and what changed him more than anything else was that, that when she received communion, the tilt of her head and the adoration that she had for what was the body of Christ, the bread and the wine, he saw this adoration she had for Jesus. And then when he saw her out among the poor and the lepers, he saw exactly the same look on her faith, face. And that's exactly the point Jesus is making here in this place that we are to do for others as has been done for us. We have received Hesed, and now it's our job and our responsibility and our joy to go and share that with others. And that's what James says. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good's that? John says by the, in 1 John three sixteen to 18, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? You want to know how to lay down your life for your brother? He says, you see somebody in need, meet the need. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. It's a principle that goes back and back and back into Judaism that says these are the things that you do. The the ways that you show hesed, they'll come up with lists of things, and, and many of the lists sound exactly like the list Jesus gave there in Matthew 25. You see me thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. You saw me hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was in prison, you visited me. I was in the hospital, and you welcomed me and visited me there. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me naked, and you clothed me. That's exactly what those lists always look like. These are, it's, but the parable of the Good Samaritan is the chief exposition of the meaning of hesed in our relationships and the way we're supposed to carry out those relationships and that hesed in the world. The world is sustained by that loyal loving kindness because if not the world ends now because of sin but instead god for the sake of the elect holds all that in abeyance until the full number have come in and then it's done and it's over with so while we live we are recipients of hesed every moment of every day of our lives we don't deserve to live we don't deserve eternal life we don't deserve any of the good things that god has given us and yet we receive them anyway. And now it's incumbent upon us to show that same kind of love, unmerited favor, to others as well. So we got to live it out. That We're living out the life of the Holy Spirit flowing through us by the hesed that we show others that we encounter in this life.